In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. I'm Conor McCauley, RTE's Northern Correspondent in Belfast. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. And this week, Belfast. This week, Boris Johnson is defiantly holding on to his beleaguered leadership as the Sue Gray report into parties at Downing Street during lockdown remains tantalisingly close to publication. We'll have all the latest from Westminster as the Prime Minister begs Tory backbenchers to save him, calling the EU's application of the Northern Ireland Protocol insane in the process. As Brexit negotiator Liz Truss hits Brussels and Belfast, we'll bring you up to date on the detail of her second meeting with her opposite number Mara Shevchevich, and we'll assess where things are at with the tortured protocol negotiations and why decision time will be February 21st and we'll come to Conor McCauley later in the podcast on that but first Tony Monday there was a big united European front including the UK joining forces with European counterparts to discuss Ukraine but as far as Brexit went it was a bit of a constant there not much unity on that particular issue despite the more pleasant mood music than in the recent past with David Frost. Yes, Colin, this was Liz Truss's second meeting with Mara Shevchevich. She flew in from Australia, uh, and we know she was in Australia because she tweeted uh, a remark about looking forward to meeting Mara Shevchevich with a picture of the Sydney Opera House in the background, uh, really geolocating herself there uh, in Australia, which is something that she likes to do on Twitter. She's uh, unashamedly in favour of uh, locating herself in very exotic places uh, as the new foreign secretary. Uh, so it was also remarked upon that she d- had travelled direct from Australia to Brussels to have these negotiations. She met Mara Shevchevich in the European Commission in the morning uh, and that meeting went on uh, for some time. Uh, and after the meeting, Simon Coveney, uh, the Irish Foreign Minister, met Mara Shevchevich in his office in the Commission uh, and got a direct briefing from Mara Shevchevich as to how the meeting had, had gone. Simon Coveney was surprisingly upbeat after that uh, briefing he had with Mara Shevchevich. Uh, here's what he had to say immediately after that meeting. Well, I think everyone is conscious that you know, February is important in the context of these discussions, and I think that hasn't changed as of today. Um, uh, I also think the mood was quite good today, uh, and I think it's important to to really welcome Liz Truss's personal engagement in these discussions. You know, she she travelled directly from Australia to Brussels to meet Marusevkovich today, and I think that says a lot in terms of her interest in trying to advance things. Um, there's clearly still big gaps between the two sides. Um, but I think uh, what you'll see for the rest of the week now is 
you know, technical negotiations between the teams. Um, we'll see Vice President Sefcovic travelling to London next week. Um, I understand that they have an agreement that at some point in February they will, they'll convene a, a joint committee, which I think is a good sign because that creates a platform for some form of agreement at that point. Um, so, you know, I think we need to show a bit of patience here and allow the negotiating teams to, to try to advance areas where, where they can find agreement. Uh, I think you'll see a big focus on SBS and customs. Um, you know, this is something that there was some discussion on before Christmas. Uh, it's an area where both sides, I think, bring different perspectives to the discussion. Um, but I, you know, ultimately, when I speak to businesses in Northern Ireland, what they want is a reduction of, on checks. They want differentiation between goods that we can show are staying in Northern Ireland in terms of purchase and consumption, uh, and goods that otherwise might be going on uh, coming south across the border into the EU. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, let's hope that the two sides can focus on the sharing of information clearly that's necessary to, to advance um, uh, that aspiration that the EU has to reduce checks significantly on those products that are staying in Northern Ireland. Uh, but in order for that to work, there needs to be a partnership approach and there needs to be information shared so that the EU can ensure that it reassures other EU member states that the integrity of the EU single market isn't, isn't being threatened and, of course, that we can respond to calls in Northern Ireland. Uh, to recognise the fact that goods staying in Northern Ireland should have a much uh, less checks burden uh, than, uh, than goods that, that may be um, um, uh, ending up uh, back in the EU. So you know, I, I, think, um, I, I hope we'll be able to make, make progress in that space uh, and I think if we do, um, you know, there are opportunities for, um, uh, for compromise in, in February. Tony, you said there he sounded surprisingly upbeat. Why surprisingly? Well, I, I think, you know, there, there have been so many mixed messages from uh, Liz Truss since she took on this job. I mean, she's been writing some fairly hardline op-eds in the Sunday Telegraph and the Belfast Telegraph. She's threatened to trigger Article 16. Uh, and when Maro Shevcevic briefed European affairs ministers on Tuesday at the gen what's called the General Affairs Council, he was painting, I suppose, a slightly more gloomy picture. Uh, he described his meeting with Liz Truss as frustrating uh, and as difficult. I mean, what it boils down to is that, yes, everyone acknowledges a, a fresh approach, a, a better atmosphere, much more cordial mood in the talks compared to uh, when Lord Frost was sitting across the table. Uh, but at the same time, Liz Truss will say things like the protocol has to be renegotiated. Um, she has been raising issues which, according to the EU, were a long time ago put to bed, uh, such as, for example, the European Court of Justice, which we've been talking about a lot on the, on the podcast, but also the question of, of state aid, uh, and her view that st the state aid provisions in the Northern Ireland Protocol should be removed and the trade and cooperation agreement provisions be used instead. And this is a very sensitive issue for the British government. The, the state aid provisions in the Northern Ireland Protocol are quite, um, they're quite expansive 
they have this reach across effect, which we talked about before, so that if a UK company has subsidiaries in Northern Ireland uh, and that UK company gets a bailout from the British government, then that can be captured by the state aid provisions in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, Liz Truss would prefer the trade and cooperation provisions on state aid, which are a lot less onerous. Right. There seems to be then a move away from it. once upon a time we were dealing with after David Frost's departure, in, in, in the lead-up to it even, dealing with the issues of practicality, an assessment, a, a, a determination to deal with what was causing the friction in Northern Ireland with regard to the protocol and, and perhaps a sidelining of the issues of principle. They, they seem to be back more centrally on the table now with Liz Truss. Yes, I mean, that, that is what's causing frustration on the EU side, bringing up issues like state aid, still insisting on some movement on the European Court of Justice. It, it is true that Liz Truss is also putting a big emphasis on customs checks, checks on agri-food products, what, what we call SPS checks, because these are the issues that cause the most acute irritation for businesses and obviously for, for unionist uh, parties as well. So she has been saying, OK, let's put our technical teams to work Uh, and really make a big effort to try and reduce the level of checks uh, that apply to goods crossing the Irish Sea and then see where we go. Um, uh, And that's why we are now looking at February 21st as a crossroads, if you like, to see if they can make enough progress on that front uh, so as to be able to say, on the 21st of February when there's going to be a, a joint committee meeting, the, the high-level political meeting of both sides, at that point say, yes, we've done enough work here to think we have the, the prospects of a deal. But at the same time, rhetorically, she keeps saying that the, the protocol has to be um, renegotiated. And also th- this idea that there shouldn't be any checks or controls on goods that are clearly just going to stay in Northern Ireland uh, and be used by by end consumers uh, and businesses in Northern Ireland. I mean, that's really the, the big stumbling block here because the EU agrees with that in principle, but says, look, in order to get a an accurate picture of what is going to stay in Northern Ireland and what's likely to cross the border into the south, we do need to do some checks to get a risk assessment uh, and it's a question of how far can you lower the checks while giving EU member states enough reassurance that the integrity of the single market is protected. And the, and the flip side of that, of course, is how much data can the UK bring to bring to the party to, to show the EU that, uh, look, this is definitely, these products are definitely not going beyond Northern Ireland supermarkets in Bangor or Derry or Armagh. Um, how do you prove that? The UK is saying, essentially, traders should be trusted to prove that. But the EU is saying, no, we need something more. Okay, Sean, if anyone was in any doubt about Boris Johnson's stance on this, and there was some speculation that it was he who had softened the line on the issues of principle uh, with, with regard to the negotiations around the protocol and the issues that were raised in the command paper, the much benighted big dog himself, was keen to dispel any doubts in the House of Commons during the week. And we had an ad from the Foreign Office. Take us through what we had in terms of Brexit developments this week, perhaps starting with the Prime Minister himself. 
Yes, well, I guess the way to start this is to play the clip of the Prime Minister in the House of Commons during Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. Sir Geoffrey Donalds. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will know that many families across the United Kingdom are struggling with the increased cost of living and rising energy costs. But in Northern Ireland, that is compounded by the protocol. 27% is the increase in the cost of bringing goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland when we can get access to those goods. It is costing business £2.5 million every day, almost a £1 billion a year, the cost of the protocol. The Prime Minister talks about uniting this nation and levelling up. He could do that by removing the Irish Sea border and restoring Northern Ireland's place fully within the UK internal market. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I must say that I support passionately the uh, indignation of of the right honourable gentleman opposite. And and, and yes, yes, Mr Speaker, uh, I never thought uh, when we negotiated that that this would be uh, 200 businesses. 200 businesses have stopped supplying Northern Ireland. Foods are being blocked, Mr Speaker. Christmas cards are being surcharged. And frankly, Mr Speaker, the EU is implementing this in an insane and pettifogging way. Uh, And we need to sort it out. And I completely support what he's saying. Now, of course, the context for this is, of course... Partygate and indeed the wider challenge to Boris Johnson's leadership because make no mistake about it he is in campaign mode there is an election campaign underway it's an unofficial undeclared campaign uh, but he is battling to save his leadership and he is busy throwing red meat to the base uh, as the strategists over here put it Uh, so any issue that might uh, dog whistle a group of Tories into backing the Prime Minister Uh, mostly in the constituencies, to then put uh, pressure onto their MPs is being thrown out there. So uh, attacks on welfare spongers, efforts to get people who are on the dole to go and take up jobs by June, uh, half a million of them, uh, bashing foreigners, always popular. The BBC. Uh, Brexit. The BBC, of course, goes without saying. Um, Channel migrants, you name it. Uh, If there's a dog out there, a whistle being pitched to his frequency is being blown pretty hard by the Prime Minister, by all his spinners, by his friends in the media, etc., etc. So that's the context in which Boris Johnson made those remarks. Pretty fiery, pretty incendiary stuff. Uh, but we must understand Mr Johnson's predicament at the moment for that. What is less uh, perhaps understandable, uh, particularly in, in light of everything Tony has been saying to us this morning, uh, is an advert that was put out on the Twitter stream, the official Twitter stream, of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, uh, which was their piece on Brexit. And it says, the Northern Ireland Protocol was designed to protect the peace process and respect all communities in Northern Ireland. It is doing the opposite, uh, with an arrow pointing down to a little video ad, uh, which runs through various right. problems with w- the Protocol. Which would Significant beg the problems. question, why, why did a government, which is a co-guarantor of the same Good Friday Agreement, how did they manage to negotiate something that was so inimical to the welfare of the Good Friday Agreement by their own analysis. Well, yes, indeed. But can I just uh, add one thing that's particularly relevant in this uh, week, uh, where this ad, this little video says, the protocol is negatively impacting community groups. This is something that uh, has been um, highlighted 
particularly by Lord Frost over the past year or so, saying it's interfering with communities. The community that they pick on, it's not the usual Catholics or Protestants, nationalists or loyalists. A red banner comes across the bottom of this uh, picture where there are people counting chicken nuggets by the looks of things on a, on a line. Uh, it says, including the Jewish community who have struggled to obtain kosher food. Uh, now, they've used this line once or twice previously, uh, but this one uh, is very prominent. It's the only example that they give in this uh, short video of a community group that is being negatively impacted right. by was this released the Northern Ireland Protocol. It, no, it, was just, it came out the day before, which was the eve of Holocaust Memorial Day. That's why it's gone down particularly badly uh, with diplomats, uh, particularly from Ireland, who think this is a, a low blow, and it's something that's come from the civil servants in the Foreign Office, how could they do such a thing? So that one didn't go down well at all. It was also uh, raised in the Doyle the very day it came out uh, by Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond. But I have to be quite frank, an hour ago uh, the UK's FCO put out the most ridiculous tweet that can only be described as Trumpian propaganda and I have to question why. When we need cooperation between the, e the EU, the UK, the US, Western countries and NATO in terms of dealing with an escalating problem on the EU's eastern border in Ukraine, and when the talks are supposedly moving to a better place, out of nowhere we have this um, absolute ridiculous uh, video put out by a government institution, not a politician, by the FCO saying all manner of things about how the Northern Irish Protocol works. I have to ask, once again, Minister, are we being taken by mugs? Going back, Sean, I suppose, to how the UK ever agreed to this objectionable protocol, as it's described by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Michel Barnier is clear that it was signed up to in full knowledge of what was in it and what its consequences were. When he spoke to Politico, his remarks were reported in their Europe playbook this morning. That's right. Today, Friday, uh, he's reported as saying Boris knew exactly what he signed up to, uh, saying you know, they went there, they negotiated this, they've got excellent civil servants, negotiated in good faith, um, should be respected by all the parties, We're looking furiously for the quote in this uh, small print. Um, the, the British government has very consciously accepted this complicated solution which preserves the all-Ireland economy, protects the internal market, provides the controls we need and keeps the peace. He's urging them to de-dramatise it. He says, I never speak about borders but only checks and controls. Uh, but that during four and a half years, uh, he said, Mr Johnson is a skilled and experienced politician. He has around him very high quality civil servants. They know exactly what they signed up for and they are the ones who negotiated. Right. Which is, of course, the case. We all know that, and it's mm. particularly those of us who've been tracking this on the podcast for the past several right. years. He, he might have slightly fewer civil servants around him, at least the same faces after Sue Gray reports on who's, who's ultimately decided to throw under a bus. Tony, uh, you mentioned there Liz Truss, and you know, Sean has just gone through maybe some of the rationale behind the rhetoric in Westminster there. So we have... Uh, a political crisis in Westminster. We have a geopolitical crisis between uh, Russia and NATO countries and Ukraine, obviously, as well, which is going to take up quite a lot of Liz Truss's time. There's a deadline of the 21st of February to try and reach resolution on some of the issues um, that are there with the protocol and the negotiations there. It strikes me that there isn't much time really to resolve these things and if there was any indication of a breakthrough, we'd probably have heard it by now. And the rhetoric has been ramped up, which means it makes it a slightly more difficult task to achieve. So what's the assessment 
in Brussels about meeting this February 21st deadline or are people thinking ultimately of holding off and looking much further into the year, possibly after the Assembly elections in May? Yeah, Mara, Mara Shevchevich told member states on Tuesday that he would like to be able to make some decision on the 21st of February. He talked about a joint gap analysis that technical teams on both sides would do, just focusing in again on customs checks and SPS checks, uh, and then say, see things were at. But he, he didn't really give any details about the basis on which he hoped that there could be an agreement. I mean, I think it's it's mostly hope more than expectation because of the noises off from Liz Truss. I mean, people here saw that Commonwealth, uh, Foreign Office video and realised that that had to have been directed uh, and ordered by by Liz Truss, who's the Foreign Secretary. So while she's doing that, on the one hand, on the other hand, she's saying, uh, yes, she wants a deal by the end of February. She want, Both sides obviously want a deal before the Northern Ireland election campaign starts to kick off in earnest. But it's really hard to see how that is going to happen. And I think as well, most member states are looking at Westminster, seeing the chaos that Boris Johnson finds himself in, and they ask themselves, how on earth is he going to be able to focus on the protocol to give his approval for a deal if that's what's going to happen? So I think people around here are, are frankly baffled at the mixed signalling coming from London, from Liz Truss, and just concern about what's happening with Boris Johnson's administration. So there isn't really any major expectation that something big will happen on the 21st of February. More likely, they will say, look, we, we've come this far. We may pause proceedings uh, to let the Northern Ireland um, election campaign get underway. And, we, you know, we'll pick things up at, at a certain point after that. But that is a bit of a lose-lose situation for, for the European Union because, again, the checks are not being uh, fully carried out at Northern Irish ports investors can't make decisions about investing in Northern Ireland because things are still up in the air. Um, and, of course, a an election in Northern Ireland could bring about a very destabilised situation afterwards if the DUP find themselves as the second biggest party and are reluctant to go into the executive uh, and assembly if some radical changes have happened uh, to the protocol. Right. Um the stability, Sean, that the EU or the instability that EU countries are looking at in London is unlikely to subside at least before this weekend. I mean, we can we can add to famous ambushes of our time like Kilmichael Cake Boris. Yes, Cake Boris indeed. The Cake I mean, Boris the ambush. Famously declared that he was in favour of both having his cake and eating it and the whole philosophy of cakeism, uh, as many people described. Uh, his approach to Brexit, uh, the approach that got him into Downing Street, etc. <laughs> Who knows, it might even be a cake uh, that might uh, see him out of Downing Street as well. Uh, although uh, I saw somewhere this morning that they're denying a, there was a, a cake. And of course, the Metropolitan Police are now uh, investigating this cake. And so it's, they seem to be blocking the publication of parts. It was a work cake. The work cake, the, the cake in progress. Um, so whatever the... the um, 
inspector corner of the yard or whoever it is uh, is looking into this uh, some people like gas at this former officers wondering why a top level uh, investigations team has been assigned to a crime or not even a crime it's an mm. offense uh, where summary conviction uh, is, is a fine uh, now 2000 londoners have paid their fines and they're not too happy at the prospect of people having parties uh, and getting away with it uh, when um, without any kind of a fine but it is it's just a fine that's it it's, it's the copper says we got you you had a party you had a cake uh, here's your fixed ticket penalty notice there's no criminal record attached to this or anything and yet you've got the top level investigative team from scotland yard now being roped into this one and spending days and days and days of police time and public money uh, wrangling with the sue gray investigative team all of which actually suits Boris Johnson really because he's in fighting this rearguard action and the longer this report is put off the more time he has to try and work on the MPs one by one and uh, get them over to his side uh, by whatever means are necessary right. and as we discussed earlier throwing all the, the red meat out and also uh, shafting uh, his uh, challengers one of whom is of course Liz Truss most popular amongst the Tory uh, party members, apparently. Strangely enough, the only Liz Trust story that's getting traction here this week in the, the last couple of days is that, as Tony mentioned at the beginning, she flew directly from Australia to Brussels for those talks. Uh, it turns out she had a privately chartered jet to do that, cost half a million quid, and uh, that's stoking a bit of outrage. Why couldn't she have gone on commercial is what the punters are wondering here. So, uh, strange funny with a leadership challenge and prospect that a, a bit of uh, usually sensitive information like that should leak out. Also Nadim Sawawi, another potential challenger to Boris Johnson, uh, is having to fend off uh, allegations this morning. Uh, no trace of the uh, whip's fingerprints will be found on that one. Apparently came from an FOI request, but uh, interesting stuff in the FT nonetheless. But watch out for the stuff. Boris Johnson has very sharp uh, elbows. He knows how to campaign. He is a campaigner par excellence. Uh, this is what he does. Uh, so the more campaigning time that he has, the stronger he becomes. Right. Tony, you're under slight time pressure, so look ahead to the coming week, if you would, and assess the possibilities through a series of events as to what, whether progress will be made. Yeah, so technical teams are, are going to be back uh, in London, I think, uh, on both sides, looking at the issues of SPS and and customs and Again, seeing uh, what gaps might be bridged. I, I talked about this joint gap analysis that Mara Shevchevich has ordered uh, his team to carry out with their UK counterparts. What that means exactly, diplomats are still a little bit uh, vague uh, on, uh, but uh, it, it's really, again, to see can there be some kind of gap bridged between the idea of some checks and controls on goods going to Northern Ireland that are staying there uh, and the UK's demand that that there be no checks at all uh, and how, how that circle is uh, squared. Um, obviously, Europe is transfixed by the Ukraine crisis and, of course, that has given no end of gleeful ammunition to some newspapers in the UK, as Sean will confirm, uh, about how Brexit Britain is showing those weak-willed uh, Europeans the way in their much tougher stance towards Russia. Um, but of course, that is a very nuanced uh, picture which would require a, a whole different podcast. Uh, but that's really what's transfixing people here in Brussels uh, over the next week or so. 
Rob, Sean, is there anything coming up in the coming week? Is it Are you more or less on Sue Grey Watch? We are on Sue Grey Watch uh, constantly here. Um, uh, we're indebted to a BBC producer who coined the phrase in the early hours of yesterday morning, Greja vu. Uh, so yeah, every day it's Groundhog Day. The latest is, you know, we expect it next week, maybe Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. Any day the Parliament is sitting, uh, this thing might potentially drop. But as I said, the longer it goes on, uh, the more advantage for Boris Johnson. But until that gets out of the way, um, political Westminster uh, is in a state of stasis or even chassis. Uh, nothing really is happening. You know, the bits and pieces, but no really big decisions are going to be made. Boris Johnson wants to be seen out and about doing the normal business of government. Uh, they like to push the Ukraine issue because it's kind of far away. It's easy, as Tony was saying, to take a bit of a lead on and show, say, you know, it's a Brexit benefit. But then again, as other people have pointed out, Boris Johnson seems to be the only prime minister in Europe who's being investigated by the police for breach of COVID rules, uh, but they're not selling that one as a Brexit benefit. OK, we're going to have a detailed look at what's been happening in Belfast with our northern correspondent, Conor McCauley, in just a second. But first, let's have a listen to what Liz Truss, the UK Foreign Secretary, was saying when she was there during the week. Well, the reason I'm here in Northern Ireland is to hear from communities and businesses about the effect the Northern Ireland Protocol is having. What I want to do is sort out the protocol, working with the EU to make sure we protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and that we protect political stability in Northern Ireland as well as making sure we deliver for the people of Northern Ireland. What I want is a deal that works for everyone. Uh, We are making progress. Uh, We're having constructive talks. I want to make significant progress by February. Uh, that's important. But it's important that we secure the support of all of the communities in Northern Ireland, including the unionist community. I care passionately about the union. I care passionately about making sure that we deliver for the people of Northern Ireland. That's why I'm here today, to listen uh, to people, to make sure that's reflected uh, in the negotiations we have uh, with the European Union. And I completely understand the frustration people feel and the need for rapid progress and that is why we are in intense negotiations with the EU to sort out the very real issues. People need to be able to uh, get access to the same goods here in Northern Ireland that they can in GB. We can't have a situation continuing where communities are struggling to get uh, those goods, where there is different treatment here uh, from 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 what there is uh, in Great Britain, so we need to sort those issues out, and I'm very exercised by that. Okay, Connor, you found yourself in an unusual situation during the week. Uh, what were you doing? What were you filming? What unprecedented sights of animal fondling were you what were you looking <laughs> at uh, in Belfast? <laughs> well, uh, Colm, uh, we were down at the uh, basically it's a it's a an area of hard standing on the edge of the port of Belfast where a lot of the trucks are sent through uh, on the way to, uh, you know, if they need uh, those RAC border checks done. And we go down there periodically and for the most part, to be quite honest, there's very little happening. But we we touched lucky uh, yesterday because as we were filming there and we were filming there obviously because Liz Truss was in town and we were going to be talking about the protocol and checks and all the rest. uh, A van load of spaniels turned up and uh, live animals have to be checked, uh, of course, as part of the RAC border checks. So uh, my cameraman, Adam Awinney, 
uh, was lucky enough to film for the first time, we think, some actual uh, physical IRC border checks being done. And essentially that uh, entailed getting the Spaniels out, uh, giving their fetlocks a good feel and a good once-over, uh, uh, running some sort of um, piece of technology over them. We're assuming that was done for checking chips uh, and that kind of thing in the animals and uh, presumably then checking that their vaccinations were up to date because those are all things that animals coming across, live animals coming across or pets coming across the Irish Sea uh, from Great Britain to Northern Ireland have to comply with. So we think we made a little bit of uh, uh, Brexit broadcasting history yesterday. Right. I mean, amusing and all as it was to see and unprecedented and all as the footage you gathered was, you actually captured on, on camera what's a real point of political irritation and one of the things I suppose that highlights what unionists in particular feel is is a real dividing line created by the Northern Ireland Protocol and this is the idea of transport of pets between GB and Northern Ireland. Yeah, pets have actually been quite a a big issue here, would you believe? Um, I don't know, does does it kind of touch a nerve in people but uh, we've done a couple of stories here about people having to go through the hoops in terms of bringing their their dogs particularly uh, back and forth but yeah you're absolutely right it is just a, an example of the kind of I suppose annoyance that there is now for some people in terms of moving um, animals or even goods of course uh, across the Irish Sea and for, and for unionist people in particular it's not just the additional paperwork and the annoyance and the, the extra hoops that they have to go through. It is this sense that somehow now they are in a way semi-detached from from the rest of the UK, that the kind of things that people in Scotland, England and Wales don't have to do, uh, they now do have to do. And, and that feeds into their uh, annoyance about uh, the, the protocol uh, and the IRC border checks. And of course, that ultimately then feeds into the politics of this place. Right, so have the election starting guns fired at this stage and are we seeing uh, this becoming a real issue and a platform for campaigning because Jeffrey Donaldson the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party has said uh, it's has threatened an occasion to collapse the institutions not work uh, the protocol so I mean if you could outline maybe what's the position at the moment in terms of working the protocol and what the commitments are from the Democratic Unionist Party being the biggest unionist party as we face into elections, assembly elections in May. Well, the election firing, uh, the election starting gun normally starts just after the last election in this place, to be quite honest, uh, <laughs> Column. So it's, we're constantly in, a, in electoral mode, uh, if you like. But yes, I think there's very little doubt that uh, the protocol on the unionist side is going to be uh, a, a you know a sizable factor in the in the upcoming elections and yes you're right of course the DUP have been making noises about pulling ministers <clears throat> out of the executive really since uh, the autumn uh, if they didn't get the progress that they wanted to see in terms of substantial changes uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol it is a bit of a movable feast now when it comes to deadlines in the DUP on this issue I mean only this week. On Monday, I was interviewing Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader in a quarry uh, just outside of uh, Belfast, and he was saying that January was a very important month, and he would want to speak to the Prime Minister, and he would want to speak to Liz Truss, and, you know, if, if things hadn't happened by the end of January, there were going to be very significant consequences, and he would follow through uh, on his uh, commitments to start, you know, withdrawing his ministers from the executive and potentially collapsing in the institutions. And then, what did we see yesterday? Um, she is making progress with the European Union. 
uh, and obviously the 21st of February is a very significant date in terms of uh, what progress uh, will have been made or not made. Well, Paul Given, who's the DUP First Minister, came out of that meeting with Liz Truss and essentially, I suppose, tacitly accepted uh, the deadline that she seemed to be putting in place, which was that she wanted to see substantial progress by the 21st of February, uh, when there's due to be a meeting of the Joint Committee which oversees the protocol. So, you know, the DUP is getting some stick about that here. They're, they're seen, I think, to be vacillating on this uh, threat issue to withdraw the ministers. They're facing into an election where the protocol is going to be, uh, you know, a significant issue within the unionist electorate. And, you know, they're starting to look a little bit weak on this point, And I think that's quite a dangerous place for them to be. In a way, they are the midwives of the protocol because having voted down all of Theresa May's proposals and enabled, in a way, Boris Johnson to take over the Tory party, he who co-designed this protocol that he, he now no longer likes, it arrived because of the size of Boris Johnson's majority and the fact that he didn't need the DUP anymore. And, and I suppose their lobbying power with the Tory party is diminished. Their tendency recently seems to have been to stay in lockstep with the UK government so as not to be seen as isolated on their own, but to be seen as being in communication with and in coordination with the UK government. Would that be a fair assessment? I think they have very little leverage now with the UK government. Obviously, a number of years ago when they held the balance of power, they had huge leverage and they and they were quite astute uh, about using it uh, to their own political advantage. I think people would probably say that perhaps they didn't see the danger in going for you know the hardest form of Brexit and the difficulties that, that would create, uh, not just in terms of the, the land border, but obviously this notion that you know if there was uh, if there was going to be that kind of a hard Brexit, there was going to have to be a, a border somewhere, and if it wasn't going to be on the island of Ireland, uh, stretching from Uri to Donegal, the only other place it could be would be in the Irish Sea, and that that was obviously going to create difficulties for them. So they are, I mean, they are in a very difficult position now, and, you know, as I say, come the May Assembly election, I, you know, I, I think that the electorate are going to put those issues up to them. And to what extent are there wings of the DUP on the issue of Brexit? I mean, obviously the principle of being semi-detached, as you put it, or the sense of being semi-detached from the UK is something that's going to cause disquiet uh, w with any unionist. But I suppose it, there was a perception that the MLAs were more pragmatic, were more in tune with business and farming interests in Northern Ireland and would have gone for a softer Brexit, whereas members uh, of, of Parliament... Uh, in the DUP were basically pavilion members of the European Research Group and peddled a far harder line. Is there any kind of distinction to be seen within the DUP at this stage or has the protocol really united them as one? That's that's qu an interesting question. I think it comes down, a lot of it comes down to, to some of the individuals. So you will, you know, both within the, the MP camp, as you put it, and also within the MLA camp, there are those who are trenchant critics uh, of the protocol. There may be people who privately uh, might take a somewhat softer stance, but I mean, that's very dangerous politically for them to say publicly. So you probably, you won't hear that being said uh, in public, but you only have to look at Edwin Poots here, the agriculture minister. He's in a particularly tricky spot and maybe this helps to illustrate the kind of wider issue that the DUP are having. He, he's the minister for agriculture. The, the Department of Agriculture is the lead um, department here with responsibility for implementing 
these uh, Irish Sea border checks. That's anathema, obviously, uh, to Edwin Poots, but he's kind of stuck with it. But we're now in a situation where he has essentially come up with a plan he thinks that may allow the DUP to potentially end the checks. Uh, what he's saying is that I need, actually, I need executive approval for these checks because they are what's known here as cross-cutting and controversial issues. And if you've got a cross-cutting and controversial issue, you're meant to bring it uh, to the wider executive for approval, something that, uh, you know, wasn't done because, essentially, I suppose it was felt that it, it didn't need to be done. But he's now saying it needs to be done. What has happened is the other executive parties have basically ganged up on the DUP and said, you're not even getting that onto the agenda. We don't want to talk about that because you know, we've put that one to bed. You're the department. You have to do the checks. We've got legal advice from the Attorney General. Uh, this is an international binding agreement. You've been told by your uh, UK counterpart in DEFRA, George Eustace, who, who wrote uh, to uh, the Agriculture Minister last year to say, look, guys, you know, we have to do these checks and, and you're the nominated body to do them. So that's an example of the kind of very difficult position that a high-profile member of the DUP, like Edwin Poots, the Agriculture Minister, is in when it comes to the protocol, particularly when you consider you know, he's going to be knocking on doors, potentially, in the next couple of weeks, asking for unionist votes. And across Northern Ireland, is there any sense of the majority view amongst businesses? Because larger businesses who have, I suppose, the internal bandwidth to be able to process customs papers and all of these kind of things maybe are outward looking and saying look there's an opportunity in the protocol small and medium enterprises might have a different view because they may not just have the staff to cope with some of the red tape that that comes with the protocol farmers obviously want as much freedom of movement for their goods and animals as possible is, is there any i suppose broad consensus view as to what a good landing point for the protocol would be away from the principal politics. I was actually talking about this to one of the uh, business group representatives relatively recently, and I was asking him just, you know, is there, can you say definitively it's a good thing, the protocol's a good thing or a bad thing, or how does it work for various people? And he, he essentially said to me, look, if you're um, if you're an exporting business, that you're in a good place because you mentioned obviously the the dual market access uh, that exists under the protocol. If you're an importing business, he said, that that's a more difficult place to be because if you're bringing uh, raw materials in from Great Britain, as many um, uh, manufacturing businesses here would be, then the protocol can create additional cost and complexity. Um, that's the big businesses. I, I think where a lot of the problems may be now though are in the smaller businesses so for example Liz Truss actually yesterday I think the only business that she visited when she was here uh, was a small uh, specialty delicatessens based in Lisburn uh, just outside of Belfast now uh, when she got there uh, she heard about the kind of problems they're having and I think one of the problems they're having is that they they bring in some specialty cheeses from Great Britain and their supplier there uh, is basically finds it more difficult under the protocol. Again, it's down to cost and complexity and paperwork and that kind of thing to send some of the produce that they would have sent in the past over to Lisbon. So it's, those are the kind of practical difficulties. And I think that was the reason that she was brought to that particular premises in that business yesterday was to, to show her the kind of email chains that, you know, business people here are having and the hoops they're having to go through to try and get, you know, a half a wheel of camembert brought over from Kent right. uh, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it, it's it's business by business, sector by sector. 
are you export, are you import? All of these things are factors in, in how you are affected uh, by the, the the workings of the protocol. And finally then, Conor, Baron Shevchevich also did a, a similar listening exercise in, in uh, Northern Ireland. He, I think he met with a, a few more businesses than Liz Trust did and he said that, look, 90% of people don't bring up the, the issue of the European Court of, of Justice in any of this and they're really look, looking at working out the practicalities of the Northern Ireland protocol. To what degree is there a high level of crossover between that principled political friction around the protocol and businesses just wanting to get on with things. Is there a sense that like, if the practicalities could be sorted out, that the protocol could fly, is politics in a way getting in the way of business or is there a meeting of minds depending on what your political sympathy is? I think business people are very much pragmatic people uh, in the first instance and I think if you know the pragmatic issues of the protocol could be sorted out, I think... You know, some people mightn't like it from a political point of view, but I think they'd probably be prepared to to get on with it. And of course, if there is an advantage to be had from dual market access, uh, they they would take that. I mean, outside of business, I mean, nobody ever talks to me about the protocol. You know, I'm I'm out and about. I'm talking to people all the time, talking to business people, just even talking to my friends and colleagues. Um, it's not it's not something that's raised with me, to be quite honest. Uh, I, I think it's it's become it's become very politicised, uh, to be honest. Somebody said to me today that it wasn't the policy of the protocol, it was the politics of the protocol that was the problem. And I think maybe that's just a very fair assumption. All right, well, that's a good point to leave it. Thanks very much, Connor. No problem. All right, that's a wrap for this week. From me, Colm O'Mungine, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Conor McCauley, RTE's Northern Correspondent in Belfast. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.